0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Don't you just hate the way Christmas has been so commercialized and it seems like retailers are are getting out earlier and earlier with all their Christmas stuff, their decorations and promotions and all that kind of thing, even before Thanksgiving? And if you're one of those people who feels strongly outraged about that, then uh, I have to warn you that our text this morning is is a Christmas text. And I realize Thanksgiving hasn't even happened yet. In my defense, I, I want to say that, that, that in the Church of Jesus Christ, we're constantly celebrating what happened at Christmas. And so we don't feel bound to wait until the appropriate season to talk about these things. Our text is Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 14. This is the Emmanuel prophecy that Isaiah gives. And the reason why we're in Isaiah is that throughout this season to come, through the season of Advent, right up until Christmas Day, we're going to be looking at uh, the prophet Isaiah. We'll be looking during Advent at the servant songs of Isaiah, these beautiful prophecies that Isaiah gave of the coming Messiah. And before we do that, I wanted to establish a a little bit of a a background in Isaiah before we dig into it. So the servant songs are later in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to, look this week at something that happens pretty early in the book of Isaiah, this first prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah to come. And so we read these words. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God comes to you, He makes a promise to you, and He says, Ask for a sign. Anything, anything in this world, It could be as as far down as the grave or as high up as heaven. Ask me for any sign. When he comes to Ahaz, Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. And you see that and you think, wow, this Ahaz, he must have been pretty pious. I know that in the Old Testament there were a lot of bad kings, but he must have been one of the good ones because he's unwilling to put God to the test. He knows that you shouldn't put God to the test. You shouldn't go to God asking for signs, you should just trust God to do what he says that he's going to do. And so clearly, here's a guy, a king actually, that we could model ourselves on. We need leaders like this. Leaders who, when when faced with tough choices, will do the right thing, the pious thing, like King Ahaz. You wouldn't draw a conclusion like that about King Ahaz, though, if you had read up on the guy. King Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom. This is after uh, the nation of Israel has split. So he rules the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's actually not one of the good kings. He's one of the bad kings. And so this moment, as you read it, it may seem like his response is a pious one, but actually it's the opposite. And you see that a little bit in the way that Isaiah responds, this idea, is it not enough for you to weary men, you have to weary God as well? This is not typically the way a prophet responds when people show a lot of piety. Ahaz was a bad king. You can read up on him in 2 Kings 16 and a little bit also in the books of Chronicles as well. The interesting thing about him as a bad king, though, is that uh, we get enough of a biography to try to understand why it is that he is the way he is. Why Ahaz answers the, the, the request, the question, the demand, really. The way that he does. Years ago, I had a creative writing professor who used to say, everybody has a case. What he meant was, you couldn't create a villain who was just pure evil and still have him be believable, plausibly human, because people who are, quote, bad people have a reason for doing the things that they do. Now we don't always know what those reasons are in life, and we certainly don't always know what those reasons are in, in Old Testament history. Because rarely does Old Testament history dig into the psychology of the characters. But in the case of Ahaz, we actually do know a little bit about his situation. So King Ahaz ruled the southern kingdom at a time when he was surrounded by enemies. Yes, Ahaz was a bad king, not a pious king, but what he really was, I think, was a fearful king. A fearful king. Because The kingdom above him, uh, which the Bible refers to as Ephraim, it's uh, the northern kingdom that had split off, Uh, Israel it's sometimes referred to. Uh, They were in alliance with other powers, Syria nearby, the Philistines, against Judah. And the reason why they were in this alliance was that Judah would not join them in opposing the Assyrians. So Assyrians and Assyrians are two different people. The Assyrians are the big evil empire. And all these smaller nations are banding together against them except for Judah, for this one kingdom. And so they do what you do, right? All of them gang up on Judah and attack Judah. And this is the context that Isaiah is coming to the king. He's coming to the king with a prophecy that's saying essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially don't worry about it. This is going to be okay. The, The alliance that is against you, literally the words that God says is, this will not stand. That resonates a little bit for some of you who were uh, alive in the early 90s. We had an American president looking at, at foreign aggression saying, this will not stand. Well, God said it first in prophecy. This will not stand was the word of God. Don't worry about it. And so it's in this context that Isaiah comes to King Ahaz. The promise has been made. God has promised your enemies will not prevail against you. And now he comes behind that promise and says, ask me for a sign ask me for a sign to guarantee or to seal the promise that I've made to you. And Ahaz says, no, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need that. Why? Why doesn't he need it? The reason he doesn't need it is Ahab has a different Savior. Ahaz, I'm sorry, has a different Savior. Ahaz, he's failed at this before. His enemies attacked Judah They prevailed against him in battle. They took a bunch of people into captivity, into slavery in Israel. Those people were released by the northern kingdom because it seemed abhorrent to the righteous people there that they would take their fellow Jews into slavery. And so they sent them home. It all worked out, so to speak. But having the memory of that, the bitter taste of it in his mouth, now, faced with the same coalition, he's going to go into battle again, and God is saying, don't worry about it. I will take care of you. And Ahaz says, you know, I think... I have a better plan in mind, and my better plan is to reach out to the Assyrians. And so he takes treasure from the temple, he sends it to the king of Assyria, and he enters into an alliance so that basically the big evil empire looming over everyone can be his friends and can fight his battles for him against his enemies. So when the prophet comes to him with this prophecy and says, ask me for a sign to show that what I'm saying to you is true. Ahaz doesn't need a sign because he's not looking to God for deliverance. He's got it worked out already. He's already made his deal. And I think the reason why is fear. Surrounded by his enemies, this is speculation, but surrounded by his enemies, I think he took the measure of the situation and it seemed to him that his best bet was to ally himself with the most powerful empire of his day. His best bet was to side with with the really bad guys against the kind of bad guys. That was the deal that he was willing to make in order to hold on to what he was afraid of losing, which was his kingdom. His fear drove him to do things that made no sense at all for a king of Judah. Judah the chroniclers, when they talk about what a bad king Ahaz was, his badness had to do with the worship that he offered to false gods. Worship to Baal. He took his children, his sons, and offered them as sacrifices to a false god. He did something else. When he met with the king of Assyria in Damascus, while he was there in Damascus, he noticed, you guys have a really nice altar. I like the way that you've done this. And he sent the plans back to the high priest in Jerusalem and said, I want you to build me one of these. And so they built a new altar and they put it in the temple. They took the altar that had been made according to the specifications God gave and they set it off to one side and replaced it with this better altar from this worship of a false god. It's not just that the power of the world around him, the culture around him, reassured him. The worship of the culture around him reassured him as well. and He wanted more of that. His assurances were found there. Fear drove Ahaz into the arms of the culture's gods, in other words. Surrounded by his enemies, he didn't rely on God, he relied instead on Assyria, on the gods of Assyria. And it drove him to do unthinkable things, which is what fear does to us. We can look at a king like this in a moment like this and condemn him easily because the Bible says he's a bad king and you certainly don't want to approve of bad kings. But can't you put yourself in that situation? Haven't we all, because of our fears, done things that should have been unthinkable to us? Hasn't fear driven us to make compromises, to tolerate things, to, to make peace with things that we shouldn't have? Doesn't fear sometimes drive us into the arms of the things that we should reject? We want security. We want, don't want to lose what we have. We have a kingdom here. We have a kingdom here. Something we've built. Something that is under threat. And we're afraid of losing it. And so we reach out, we look for allies in the culture, and sometimes we find very strange badfellows indeed. We see altars in the culture. Worship in the culture. And to us, it seems wiser. It seems better. It seems more wonderful than the worship of the living God. We don't reject Him outright. We don't say, I'll never go to that temple again. But we say, you know, I I do wish this temple could be a little bit more like that one. And so we bring into the worship of God things from outside to make it better to make it better for us. And the unthinkable thing, the most unthinkable thing, from our point of view, that Ahaz does, is this sacrifice of his children. But haven't we also, out of fear, sometimes offered up our children to the world? Haven't we sometimes given up on things we shouldn't have given up on and made at least metaphorical sacrifices? I read this article in The the Telegraph this week, the headline, Parents fear that religion will make their children outcasts. read you a little bit of this. About a quarter of religious parents are not passing on their faith to their children for fear. They will be alienated at school, a survey has revealed. If we have any young people, don't get nervous that your parents are passing on their religion and that you will be alienated. The poll found that one in four were worried that their offspring might be sidelined by friends if they passed on their religious views. A similar proportion of parents said they were concerned that their children may have questions I could not answer. It's not just fear of the culture, sometimes it's fear of the children. The greatest concern parents had was about social media, with more than a third saying that they felt it would have more of an impact on my children's beliefs than my input. You think about that, and... I don't know. I, I think the first time I read something like that, it's always so easy to think, well, those are bad parents. Well, those parents must not believe in the truth of, of what they profess, because if you believed in the truth, you wouldn't care if it would alienate people. Right? If, if you're going to be alienated for believing in the truth, well, be alienated. That's a small price to pay for, for, for knowing the truth. And then you think about it a little bit, and you sympathize a little bit, You understand the fears that drive us to do things like this and you start recognizing the ways in which your own fears have driven you as well. That you've done the same kinds of things. I've done the same kinds of things out of fear. You don't pass on what you believe because you don't want to make your kids a pariah. And you rest assured, you're going to make them pariahs in all sorts of ways. You can't stop it. You don't say the things you could say because you yourself, you don't want to be a pariah. Right? You don't want to be seen that way. You don't want to be alienated. Like none of us do. We want to be in community with one another, not just here, but but everywhere that we go. And so out of that fear, like Ahaz, we do things we ought not to do. And God makes promise to us says to us, and He says, Ask for a sign, and we're like, No, I'm good. I'm good. You you said what you said, and let me just get, get on with what I'm doing here. Be uncommitted. Fear uncovers your weakness. Fear uncovers your weakness. And there's no use denying how weak we are. But because of our weakness, when God makes promises to us, He seals His promises with signs. He seals His promises with, with signs. Now it's interesting when you look at what happens here, Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, and then when Isaiah answers, he says, here then, O house of David. So he changes who he's addressing here. He doesn't just say, oh, here now, King Ahaz, now he's speaking to the house of David, to this, this kingly house through whom the Messiah will come. The reason why the prophet Isaiah is quoted by New Testament authors so frequently is not just that they really like them or they happen to have a lot of Isaiah scrolls lying around. It's because the prophet Isaiah creates, he he creates the environment in which their worldview operates. Like, Isaiah is the water in which New Testament authors swim intellectually. Because it is Isaiah the prophet who articulates the longing, the great desire for the Messiah to come. He's the one who gives us the language of anticipation. The one who tells us that when he comes, this is what he will do. And this is what he will be like. So it's no surprise that the disciples of the Messiah, when he came, were steeped in the prophet Isaiah. That they they lived and breathed Isaiah. Isaiah. And so Isaiah here, when he speaks these words, is speaking them not just to one man, but he's speaking them to a people, to a household, through whom the promised one will come. Hear then, O house of David. Then he gives a little admonition. Why do you have to wear God out like this? And then he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is not the first time God's made a promise and then backed it up with a sign. When you go back and you look at the, the covenant history of God where he enters into covenants with his people, this is the way it works. When, when Noah, after the, the flood, has made this promise that I will not destroy the world this way again, God seals that promise with a rainbow. So that now, forever after, when you're driving down the road and on the horizon you see a rainbow, you think, ah, the world is not going to flood and be destroyed the way it was. God made a promise. He sealed it with a sign. When God makes his promise to Abraham, that great covenant promise of which we are inheritors, he seals it with a sacrifice, a physical sign. In the concrete world, something visible happened, something tangible, something you could touch and smell, that sign. It symbolizes the promise, but in the richest possible way. The promises God has made to us, these covenant promises of grace and salvation are sealed with signs. Sacraments, we call them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are signs that seal promises. They're not just empty rituals. They're not just things that we do because we were commanded to do them. They have a significance, sign value. They signify the promises that are behind them. The sacrament of, of baptism signifies that covenant promise of salvation. The Lord's Supper, when we partake of it, it signifies our union with Christ that nourishes us, that gives us eternal life. Why bother with signs when you have the Word? Why bother with signs when you have the Word? You could put yourself in that pious frame of mind, right? And think, hey, look, if God says it, it's going to happen. I don't need any signs. I just need the Word. I need the Word. Preach the Word. Forget about the signs. That's an attitude in the church that is viewed as pious. That's how I grew up, hearing things like that. And the signs that God had given, we didn't abandon them, but we kind of hollowed them out and made sure nobody thought they actually meant anything. We did them because we were commanded to do them, but but when we did them, we always explained what they didn't mean. (laughs) Which is a strange thing to walk into if you're not familiar with the reasons behind it. We're doing this thing, but we don't want you to make the mistake of thinking it signifies anything real. It's just an empty ritual. We don't need it because we have the Word. We have the Word. So, if we have the Word, why do we need signs? Because of our weakness. Because when you say things or think things like, I don't need the signs God has given, just give me the Word, you imagine yourself to be strong. I'll stand on the promises. I will entertain no doubts. I don't need any reassurances. Come on. I have the Word. In that moment, Maybe you are strong, but you won't stay that way. God seals His promises with signs because of our weakness. Calvin says that baptism and the Lord's Supper are not superfluous signs, but necessary ones because of our weakness. Because we forget the promise. Because we need to see it as much as to hear it. We need those signs. And we shouldn't scorn them as Ahaz did. If God says to you, hear, signs. I've made you promises and I've given you signs. Do these things until I come again. We should not scorn them out of a false sense of our own strength, but rather should cling to them in a recognition of our weakness. There's a danger in neglecting the signs that God has given. If a high view of the Word leads us to a low view of the signs that seal that Word, then we drive those of us who are weakest away in search of other signs. You see this in the church. There is this, this movement, this thing, where in search of mystery and signs, people are fleeing from churches that have a high view of the Word because they're looking for the signs that reassure them in their weakness. And the thing about it is, if we don't give the signs God has given, in our desperation, we'll cling to any sign. We'll look for anything. Anything is good. We're not discriminating. So it's important for us as a church not only to preach the word, but it's important for us also to seal it with the signs that God has given us, to have a high view of the word and a high view of the signs that seal the promises of the word. Because if we have his signs, we need no others. If we have his signs, we can be confident that he will keep the promises behind them. That he will save as he's promised to do. It's because of our weakness that God seals his promises with signs. And those signs give strength. But not because they're signs or mysteries or anything like that, but because of the promises that are behind them. Because of what the signs signify, in other words. And when you look at the prophecy, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There are at least two good arguments for not believing that this has anything to do with Jesus. One of them is translational and one of them is contextual. First, let's talk translation. So the Hebrew word translated here, virgin, is Alma, which, as you know, if you're kind of a little familiar with this, Quote, liberal Bibles translate young woman. So if you have an NRSV, for example, that would read, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. Now, I don't like this this, um, way of talking about theology and stuff where we say, well, some theology is conservative and some theology is liberal because I think what is true and what is orthodox is more than conservative, if that makes sense. And I think our political categories can mislead us about the nature of what it means to cling to the truth over time. Set that aside, though, I think this is definitely one of those things, certainly if you're looking for a, a Bible translation, you go to the, the Bible bookstore and you ask, you know, what's the difference here? This is one of the verses They'll you say, oh, well, that's a liberal translation because it translates that as young woman instead of virgin. We're not going to get too nerdy here. We're just going to get a little bit nerdy. What you need to know is that this Hebrew word, can accurately be translated as young woman. It's a word that has a range of meaning that is broader than, for example, the English word virgin. So it's not a mistranslation to translate it that way. But there is a history to how this is translated. So before Christ, before the New Testament, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see it uh, referenced uh, LXX, That's uh, Roman numerals for 70, because supposedly 70 translators were involved in this work. And when those translators translated this word, they had a range of meaning that they could have chosen from, and they chose a Greek word that very specifically meant virgin. That's how they translated it. That's how New Testament authors were familiar with it. If you think about that, you could translate it that way, and it doesn't necessarily imply the virgin birth. Right? The, the, the scroll of Isaiah was available to everyone to read, and nobody was reading this, seeing a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, and thinking, oh, this is referring to some sort of miraculous birth to come, because this happens all the time. Virgins conceive and, and bear sons all the time, but they do it through a historical process. That, that typically involves like marriage and other things. I won't get into in detail. And, and then a son is produced. So there's a way of speaking here, right, where you're projecting into the future. And you might be saying something like, well, one of these uh, virgins here will, in the future, conceive and bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. And you're like, oh, OK. And the significance is there's this son coming. He's going to be really special. But you don't necessarily put any special import on the way that, that it's written. If you get the point that I'm making, what I'm saying is the translators of the Septuagint, these Jewish translators, could translate accurately this term, virgin, to mean this, this young, unmarried woman, and they could do it without intending that it has any sort of messianic significance in itself. It wasn't inaccurate for them to do this. It was within the range, and it was a plausible contextual translation as well. But what happened was, Christians really seized on this. In hindsight, knowing the circumstances of the birth of Jesus, they look back at the Old Testament and they saw, wow, this is exactly what Isaiah was talking about. Jesus himself identifies himself with these prophecies. And as Christians dig into them, they see these things. And you know who gets uncomfortable? Jewish religious leaders who don't want to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Because as if, this is anachronistic to say it this way, but it's like you're using my own Bible against me. Like like I revere Isaiah, Isaiah's my prophet, not your prophet, and you're telling me that he predicts like your Messiah. So, in the time-honored tradition that has been observed ever since, they did a new translation. And all of the things that had been translated in ways that Christians could use were retranslated so that Christians couldn't grab hold of those things as easily. So it's not inaccurate to translate the word as young woman. And the argument in favor of it from a a scholarly point of view is that if we translate it in that broader sense, it's open to a wider range of interpretations. I would argue that, that it's open to those interpretations either way. The point is it's accurately translated the way New Testament authors received it. And we have good reason to believe because of the way that they received it that they read it rightly. There's also a contextual problem. If you read... This Emmanuel prophecy, you read the Emmanuel prophecy, you'll see there are certain aspects of it that seem to put the time frame on it as being immediate future. It's something like this, um, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name will be called Emmanuel. and by the time he knows to choose between good and evil, the problem you're worried about, that's going to be resolved. You're not going to need to worry about that. And then this is backed up by the fact that Isaiah gets a prophecy about himself, that he should have a son, that he should give him a particular name. And by the time that son grows to a certain age, this will all be over. As a result of that, some people look around and they say, well, this Emmanuel, this wasn't some Messiah in the far future. This is actually King Hezekiah. It's King Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, famously good king under whom the kingdom that was in such danger rallied. That's who's being promised here. Well, Calvin looks at that and he says, well, there's a little bit of a problem, actually two. One is that by this time Hezekiah had already been born. How can a man enter a second time into it? Well, you get the idea. Um, the other problem is if you look at the, the the language that is applied to this Emmanuel, it is pretty highfalutin. right? Handel sets this stuff to music, and it doesn't sound like King Hezekiah. Or even King David, for that matter. It sounds so much higher than that. I will let you, if you're interested, dig into the various interpretations. It's fascinating stuff. And, and these are situations, I think, where, where we are often fearful. Like, you don't want to dig into this stuff too much, because what if you find out that what you thought was wrong? Don't think that way. It, it's, it's interesting and, and more than that, faithful to dig into Scripture and understand better where the arguments come from and where the different readings, how they're supported, that sort of thing. But, but the thing I will say is this. It wouldn't be the first time that God made a prophecy that seemed to be fulfilled in one way and turned out to be fulfilled in a much larger way later on down the line. The prophecies of God sometimes are like stones skipping across the surface of history. That hit once and you say, wow, that was a prophecy and look, it was fulfilled. And then, bam, they hit again in a way and you're like, oh no, it was that. I get it now. And the prophecies that New Testament authors look back to are often like this. People thought they understood. And then when it was fulfilled, they realized, oh no, it was this. What God was doing was actually something more than we gave him credit for. So I would argue that that there's room to interpret this prophecy in different ways as long as we understand it in light of what comes afterwards. Because what's interesting here is not the textual arguments, the translational arguments, that sort of thing. What's really uh, strengthening about this is what these signs signify. Because when you go to the book of Matthew... And you see Matthew at the very beginning of his Gospel narrating the birth of Christ. He enters into the mind of Joseph. Joseph, who we're told in Matthew 1, this is a righteous man. He's an upright man. And when he discovers that his betrothed Mary is with child, he doesn't want to humiliate her or shame her. He wants to quietly end it and go his way. Resolved to do that, he goes to sleep. And in a dream, an angel comes to him and says to him, the child that you're about to disown is a child given to her by the Holy Spirit. His name will be called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. So you should go ahead and go through with this. And then Matthew says... All this was done to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. And he quotes Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds a gloss, which means God with us. The sign was given long before. What it signified arrived in the days of Matthew in fulfillment of the prophecy that was given. Joseph, who had some anxieties, who had some fears. If he goes through this, there could be judgment involved, like social penalties involved in going through with this marriage. And the angel comes to him and says, you know what? This child will save his people from their sins. Do it. What the angel says, those words of the angel, he will save his people from their sins, that's what the sign signifies. In our weakness, we doubt. In our weakness, we think, well, maybe. In our weakness, surrounded by enemies who seem so much stronger, surrounded by other gods, other saviors, other worship that seems so much better, more impressive, meteor, whatever, we doubt, we wonder. So we need the signs that God has given us. In the days of King Ahaz, Ahaz feared that he would lose his kingdom. And that fear drove him to do things he shouldn't have done. The kingdom he was afraid of losing, by the time the Messiah came, it was dead and gone. It had been lost. The Romans were just the most recent occupiers of what once had been the kingdom that Ahaz had done so much to hold on to. That hope, that was gone. But the promise turned out to be greater than that kingdom. The promise was greater. God makes promises to us. But what he doesn't promise is, the thing that you're holding on to, you'll never lose that. Whatever you're anxious about, God's not saying, oh, don't be anxious because whatever you want, you'll have it. That's not what it is. We will lose a lot. A lot of the things that we're holding on to, we will not be able to hold on to. Because we shouldn't. The promise that He will save us from our sins, that we will be in Christ and live forever. We will be what we were made to be. That is the promise that God's signs signify. That is the promise to cling to. The promise is that as your kingdoms crumble all around you, As you fear the future, God is sending a king to build a kingdom much greater than the ones you're so anxious about. The word and the sign remind us that that king will come again. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsuefalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.